Welcome to the Vita Voices Power to Empower podcast series, where we're speaking with women leaders from around the world about their bold ideas, their courageous leadership, and their thoughts on the way forward. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. Our journeys shape the leaders we become. And today I'm honored to be speaking with someone who's turned her experiences into a powerful pathway to help others reconnect with themselves after trauma. Her Royal Highness Intisar Al-Sabah is a Kuwaiti princess and the founder of Intisar Foundation. The Intisar Foundation works to foster peace across the Arab world by providing psychological support to women affected by war and violence, using drama therapy to help them become the region's most impactful peacemakers. Her Royal Highness is also the founder of Al-Nawar, Al-Nawar Positivity Initiative, a nonprofit effort, effort to bring positive change, social and behavioral change to Kuwait. And today we're speaking with her about her journey to creating a more positive, peaceful world. Your Royal Highness, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my God, what an honor. Thank you for the, the privilege of being in this amazing world-renowned podcast. Well, I'd love to just start off with your personal journey. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what drives you and your passion for helping others overcome their traumas? I'm a I'm a really deep believer that we can only change what we know in this world. We cannot expect to change the things that are beyond us and our own experiences. And when our leadership is born out of our own experiences, good or bad, it makes us deeply authentic, but also deeply empathetic leaders. And I believe so strongly that's what our world needs. And I know that your journey really um, exemplifies that. Can you talk a little bit about that passion that, that drove you to create the initiative? Oh my God, I agree so much with what you, what you just said about our painful journeys and sometimes we call them painful because we think we shouldn't be going through them but that's what makes us in a way um, I grew up in um, a normal household um, I was sheltered yet I was independent I went to a, a British school when I was young I graduated and I entered Kuwait University and then I got married when I was 20 very young uh, my mother wasn't happy she found it too young but I got married and um, my husband was he, he was uh, he was I don't I don't want to put words he was the person he was and he um, wasn't kind to himself and wasn't kind to me also and so within four years of being married I uh, I separated and within the same year, the invasion happened. So I had two sets of trauma, one from being in an abusive marriage. And the second one was, we're sleeping. I got, I got woken up at three o'clock in the morning by my sister-in-law to say Kuwait was invaded. It was shocking. Mm. Um, it was horrific. And uh, we, we stayed in Kuwait for about three weeks. And during that time, I had my two children about three and a half and four and a half. And we kept wow. moving from one house to the other. 
the thing I think the most that, that affected me was the fact I wanted to shield them from the pain or from the, the you know, the, the fear of what was happening. So I wanted, so all I did was, or, 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 or let's say all I tried to do was to have fun with them. So we'd be dancing when the bombing was, when they were bombing um, the palace, the, you know, the, the country palace was opposite the house we were staying in. They were bombing and I'd take them to the back room in, of the house we were in and we'd dance. Or uh, we went to another house and there'd be gunshots and I'd say, oh, they're guns, you know, they're, they're um, fireworks. So during those three weeks, I was very um, focused on my daughters and uh, focused on not scaring them, but I was very detached from my emotions. I had the emotions, I was numb. <laughs> and the only time I went out, I remember going to uh, donate blood and uh, at, you know, going through the streets, I would see dead soldiers and, we, and some of the time we'd be walking and I'd see a dead soldier and I'd literally go and kick the dead soldier. Mind you, I'm not someone who can even see a chicken being slaughtered. So I went from someone who didn't like to see blood, didn't like to see violence to being happy to see dead people. And I literally took the helmet and uh, we took the water bottle and I was just happy and think, I hope they all die. And uh, after three weeks, um, my grandmother said, yes, she, she, she was adamant she wasn't going to leave. So imagine we were 64 people in a three bedroom house and, and, and surviving or trying to survive with about eight or nine children. Uh, we ended up leaving after three weeks and driving across the desert um, to Saudi Arabia. So knowing later on that this is my trauma and this is how I acted after my trauma is what is the driving force behind me wanting to support other people get over their traumas and also get over their um, negative thinking and negative behavior. So how did you realize that there were some mental health issues going on? This was, this was not normal. How did you begin to, to really recognize that and, and, and really take back control of your life? When I realized that I wasn't happy. I mean, I'm looking at my pictures. I, I looked, I mean, the pictures, I'm always smiling. You know, I'd, I'd look at people and I, I used to have a lot of fear. I used to have so much fear of everything. So it was always running and running and running and always not good enough. I never thought whatever I did was good enough. Nothing I did was ever good enough. I remember going to, I used to have a naturopathic dentist and he said to me one day, I went to him and I, I was always fatigued yet I never slept. And he said, you're like someone who's got one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. He says, you cannot continue doing this. You have to take one foot off. So I had a very interesting, from 20 to about 40, I had a very interesting life, very interesting. I, I never want to do it again, but it's actually shaped who I am now. Mm, yeah, that that doesn't kill us makes us stronger. It's always exactly. hard to run through it, but you, you do look back and say, I learned a lot. And yeah. I think you 
did something very special with that learning and that's really to put it to use. And I think that is what separates someone, you know, from having an experience to sort of leading from experience, right? So can you talk about starting up your foundation? I know it specializes in drama therapy and I'm a, I'm a huge believer um, in that kind of therapy. I have seen it work around the world with survivors of human trafficking and violence sexual violence in India. Um, I have, I have, I have seen it around the world play such an important role. I think the arts are so incredibly transformative, but how did you, how did you decide to incorporate them? What, what was that journey like to create the foundation? So, do you know, there's, I always believe in uh, synchronicity, synchronicities, never serendipities. So I was asked by the International Committee for the Red Cross to do a roundtable in Kuwait to raise awareness and advocate for the plight of Arab women and children affected by the war. And when we did the roundtable, it was amazing, very successful. We had the vice president of ICRC at the time, Madame Berli, come to Kuwait, especially for that roundtable. And one of the recommendations we had, we had six really great recommendations. The only one that struck me was one demanding for more healthcare and mental healthcare for both women and children. And Mm -hmm. because I understand how unraveling the mental agony in the mind is towards, let's say, how unraveling the mental agony and how it gets us to a better place, I knew that these women and children, especially the women, because women are the most neglected uh, people affected by, or neglected um, segment affected by war. Everyone, we all use, we all look at the children mostly, mm-hmm. and the women always put their families first. So they, they're always the last to get any kind of support. Mm-hmm. So I thought, who is, and I asked the ICRC, what are you doing for the women? They said, we're working with children. I said, no, what are you doing with the women? And at the time, nothing. They weren't doing anything. They, they did subsequently. And um, so I thought, so I realized no one's doing anything for the women or no one's focused on the women. And Tussar, that's something you have to do. I go through my life. If I'm, if I'm going down, you know, my, my, the way I see things, if I'm walking down a path and there's a big hole, I have two choices. I don't have a third choice. One is to patch it up, okay, or to go around it. You cannot ignore it. I, I choose not to ignore something. Either I can do something about it and I patch it or I can't and I, um, and I just go around it. And so I realized no one is doing anything. That's your duty. You have to support these women. And then we mapped what was being done and why uh, there was no focus on mental support for women. And primarily it was because no one thought of prioritizing women. Mm. But also there's the stigma of mental health. There's Mm. uh, the shame of mental health. And there's also the cultural boundaries of seeking mental health. And so that was, um, it was like an investigation. We were like detectives going around and looking why the aversion? Why is this not working? Why is this not working? Why is this working? And trying to piece, mm. uh, piece, make make a nice um, 
solution yeah. that we could offer to these women. And uh, so we looked at uh, the arts because, um, as you said, arts is a very, um, it's a kind of way of supporting people because there's a bit of play, fun. Um, you don't take yourself seriously, which is very good if you want to release any kind of pain. Mm. And uh, from looking at the arts, we, look at, we looked at different therapies and we did programs in different therapies. And we realized arts is really good, but drama therapy is spectacular. Mm. And so we stayed with it. And since you know, I haven't regretted not even once focusing on drama therapy and theater and how it can change um, people, but it can change women drastically. It is so powerful. And talk a little bit about why you think, particularly in the Arab world, but I mean, as we know, this is true globally, why there is so much stigma around mental health. And you talk so openly about it. And I think that is, you know, a step in the right direction, right? Until leaders and those we look up to speak about these things, nothing will change, right? It, it, we have to break the silence. Why do, why do you think there is so much stigma? Had you met me 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been saying 10% of what I'm saying now. My openness comes from the, 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 the safety in being vulnerable. I'm not fearful of what people think of me because I don't think badly of people. And the world is a reflection of us, right? Mm. And so for me, uh, talking about my, my experiences, talking about my trauma, talking about things that 99% of other Arab women will not talk about comes out of a sense of security, a sense of kindness in a way. So, Because I look at my experiences with a kind eye or, or with a peaceful eye, I have no problem with showing them to the world. Enough self-worth to realize I deserve better. So at the time, I was too ashamed to even admit to my family that I was being abused. And now it's like, I just didn't know any better. And this kindness came from really working with myself, really building my inner dialogue to a place where it's kind, it's loving, it's, it's a good place to be in. Mm. So I would, I mean, I look forward to more and more people talking about the, the, the journey they've gone through because only when we share can we inspire other people to get out of where they are. That is really powerful. And I, I speak very openly about um, mental health issues that I had following the birth of my first child. My daughter had terrible postpartum anxiety and I like literally thought I'm going crazy. I don't know what this is because I'd heard about postpartum depression and this is a form of that, but it didn't seem like what I imagined depression would be, right? So this was a, you know, fear and anxiety and not able to sleep. And, you know, I talk about it very openly because, you know, I was really lucky to have 
a really supportive husband and a really supportive mother who sort of recognized it and knew it wasn't, I wasn't okay. Um, and so I felt very fortunate. And I think, what if I didn't have anyone who was holding my hand during that time and pulling me out, right? Um, it's so dark and you really, it's because it is mental health. It's also so painful. I remember yeah. almost feeling a pain in your body because you have a pain in your mind. I mean, it's yeah. uh, such a hard, hard thing to describe unless you've experienced it. And, you know, as we were talking about before, I feel as though because I have experienced it, I can relate and I can empathize. And mm -hmm. that is so deeply important, I think, for any leader, particularly now, right? The world is really still reeling from COVID-19. Um, this, this pandemic just crippled, you know, economies and created incredible, you know, economic uncertainty and isolation. We, had, we saw a huge rise in violence, uh, domestic violence, child abuse, gender-based violence. Um, and that, that all is, is interconnected and does affect our mental health. It, our worlds have been shifted. There is no way to not be impacted by that, no matter who you are. Um, can you describe a bit about how the pandemics impacted your work or maybe shifted your thinking about your work? I mean, I don't know if you were able to, you know, I mean, as you talk about sitting with that woman, you know, grunting, screaming, you know, getting it out. If you're online, <laughs> it's, it's a little more difficult to connect, right? You know, when, when uh, the lockdown happened, the first thing, I mean, seriously, the team in the foundation, they have the biggest hearts, the biggest hearts. They have so much passion that what they do is not work. It's something they really enjoy doing from, the onset of, of the week, you know, from the first week when everything was on lockdown, they started calling the women because they know how vulnerable the women are. I mean, these women, you know, live in one bedroom house, uh, apartments with many children. Um, and imagine now they're being locked in with the men. And as, as you just said, normal, people became more angry. How about angry people? They just become more violent. And so a lot of them were locked in with no way out. And so what, what we did was from week one, started talking to the women. By beginning of the second week, we were doing virtual sessions. Uh, they, they, you know, they all knew how to use WhatsApp, but then they became really um, tech savvy. And then they start, we started using Zoom with them. So we started having virtual uh, sessions with them. And it really helped them. For sure, they prefer coming and, and working together, but it really, really helped them. And one woman, she, she couldn't speak because the husband was in front of her. So they, you know, they would be talking to her and, and you know, we just ask her, move your eyes, blink as a yes or double as a no. So we'd be asking her questions and things like that. And she'd only blink. And the women are, are they really are survivors. And we learn, I personally learn so much from them because 
they are so superhuman and so resilient. They have the, the most difficult life, yet they survive and they want to change. So when they come to the program, it's because it helps them get to a better place, a more peaceful place. And um, to tell you the truth, when we first, when I first started the foundation, I wasn't thinking of peace. I was just thinking of mentally supporting women. And when we started working with them, uh, we started from, from day one doing, uh, you know, collecting data, doing, uh, because we wanted to publish research and all of that. From day one, we started seeing that these women were going to a completely different place than when, where we thought they'd be going. So they became more peaceful inside, um, less angry, um, um, less violent with their children, uh, not tolerating violent, violence on them, um, allowing their children to speak, uh, allowing their children to show emotions, they started showing emotions. So these women, they were transforming into this more peaceful state of being that after a year, we're looking at all, you know, other than sitting with the women, we're looking at all the data and all the, um, all the data coming out and we're realizing, oh my God, this is beyond mental health care. This is peace building at the most grassroots possible. It's a, it's a grounds up peace building. Mm. And that is what made us change the whole narrative that, or the communication of the, of, of, of the foundation. And it gave us the courage to say, okay, no, we're going to be working with a million women who will be influencing at least a 1 million families, but each woman would be influencing six and each of these six would be influencing another six. So we thought, we, we, we realized we can make a big difference in the Arab world just by capacity building of these women and showing and, and allowing them to realize their self-worth, to realize their potential, to realize the peaceful place they have inside, but also to realize that they are more powerful than they ever thought they were. And mm. we see it over and over and over again. So um, what, what we're doing now, and, and I would like you know, everyone hearing to, to, um, to join in raising awareness about how resolving mental health issues can bring peace. So we're working on a big global campaign mm. and it'll be launched on the 21st of September, which is International Day of Peace. And so what we're doing with that campaign is we're advocating that mental health should be included in humanitarian aid response. So usually humanitarian aid response is med medicine, food, shelter, and water. What we're doing is we're asking for mental health support because we know, and we've seen it, especially after the Beirut blast, port blast, mm -hmm. that the women and the population, and they still haven't recovered and take them years to recover if they don't get initial mental health support from the onset. 
the longer it takes to seek support, the longer it is in the body, in the psyche, in the memory, it becomes like, like, like thicker glue that is not impossible, but it just gets harder and harder with time to, to dissolve this glue. But if it's given from the beginning, can you imagine how quicker we would be getting out of that state of, of if, if PTSD, um, anguish, whatever the state is, and everyone sees things in a different way, if we were given mental health support from the beginning. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the mental health for peace is my attempt to highlight that, to grow the awareness of the necessity and the need for mental health at the onset, not after four years, not after three years, not even after a year. It has to be in the beginning because once we realize, um, or let's say once we remove the cobwebs of trauma and, and PTSD from our minds and our bodies from the beginning, imagine how quickly we grow in a very short time, as opposed to taking a very long time to get out of the, the, the rut that we're in. Mm. Now, I know that you're also the founder, um, as I mentioned before, of Alnaware uh, Initiative, which incubates programs that promote positive thinking. And I know that you also are extremely passionate about human rights, education, protecting children and women's rights in addition to the work that you do around mental health, which I completely agree is the sort of cornerstone or anchor of everything that you do, because I think that you're, I mean, I have never heard what you just said, but it makes complete sense, right? That mental health is critical for peace. Um, exactly. It's, but talk a little bit about some of the other work that you do in the community that you see as integral to that. Okay, so um, I I, I've been a volunteer for more than 35 years, and I volunteered uh, with um, an NGO in Kuwait that supports children in hospitals. So we have play leaders, we have playrooms, we have child life specialists, and we work with these children to give them a more pleasant and less stressful and less traumatic experience in hospital. And you think it's normal, but when our founder started this about 35 years ago, people are thinking, yeah, but children don't need, they're okay. You know, they'll be out of the hospital very soon. But she knew from caring for her child who was in hospital that no, children need support because it is a very traumatic experience. They're separated from parents. They're in an alien place. So I worked, I volunteered, I, I still am there. I volunteered for many, many years. And that's when I realized that once you work in, from an emotional, with an emotional layer with, with people, you just get the best out of them. And in 2013, something happened in Kuwait and, um, and I realized that we need more positivity here, especially that I read about um, research done at Harvard. Uh, and after 10 years, they've proved that a person only has one outlook on a subject or on life which is either with a net uh, positive way or a negative connotation. So I realized I see things in a different way than a lot of other people. I see it with hope. I see it with, yeah, I can do something to change it. I see it with, 
it'll be fine. And other people are like falling apart. It's like, oh my God, doom and gloom. And, I, and so I realized, I, I've seen this research. I know what positive psychology is. And at the time I didn't know what positive psychology, but I love reading and I started reading about it. And I thought, I need to bring this to my country and I want to work with the youth. So uh, I started Anywhere, which is the first um, NGO in the Middle East using positive psychology for social behavioral change. So we started in the public arena in the beginning. We worked in malls, we worked in the street, we work on, on online and social media. And then two years after, so 2015, we started the pilot study in schools. It, it went really well. And so we started working on a curriculum done by experts in positive psychology, but they're more educators than they are ac academics. And uh, we launched it in 2016. We started with six schools. And these are all public schools. So we started working with the Ministry of Education. 2017, sorry, 2015, we launched 2016, we had around 20 schools. 2017, we had 30 schools. 2020, just before the, the you know the, the lockdown, and and since 2020, we have we've had only um, e-learning in Kuwait. We were in 47 high schools, uh, training about 500 teachers that uh, on, on a curriculum that was implemented with about 12,000 students. And also with that, from the onset, we started collecting data in the first six weeks of implementing the program with 1,200 um, students. So we had a control group and, uh, and the group we, we, we used the program with, there was within six weeks, a 7% change on outlook on life. 7% between the control group outlook on life diminishing and the, the group that we worked with, their uh, outlook on life grew. So that 7% was an eye opener for us. Wow, 7% in six weeks, that's huge. Yeah, that is huge. And that, also, that is huge. So that just tells you people are hungry for hope. People are hungry for seeing things from a better perspective. People are hungry for enjoying life because that's what positivity is. You get to enjoy life and thrive in life as opposed to taking life seriously um, and, and all the consequences of seriousness because I am not an advocate of seriousness anymore because I know how diminishing it is. And so enjoying passion, uh, having fun while you're studying and, and that, I, I'm going to share with your permission a couple of things that we've, um, we found. Students were kinder to each other. There's less bullying, less violence, um, better grades, better uh, success rates, uh, less absenteeism. And with the teachers, we had less absenteeism, more collaboration between them, more collaboration with the admin, uh, administration in schools, loving their jobs more. There was such a huge and, and, and pronounced difference that uh, we're now part of um, Kuwait's uh, human capital project. So do you see, it's, it's different forms of psychology 
but they all lead, I mean, all, all what they say, all paths lead to Rome, different forms of psychology, but they all lead to a, um, a kinder, more peaceful, uh, I won't say even better, better is not the right, the right word, uh, more loving human being to themselves and therefore to others. Mm. I mean, we had so much success and we had so much data that I was invited by the president of the General Assembly at the UN to speak at the, the International Day for Education. Mm. So I can't imagine there's, there's anyone who's tuning into this conversation and not relating with some of the things that you are saying, right? Because it has been such a traumatic 16 months for all of us. And, and, and as we know, many much more different, much more difficult than others. What advice do you have for people? What are some of those practices, those mental health practices <laughs> that they can bring into their lives? Just simple ways to start being more in tune with yourself. I love that question. And honest truth, I always say the same thing. Do one thing, but do it consistently. Don't do it for a day or two or three or a week and then stop it. It, this has to be a life change. It's, it's like going on a crash diet for two months and then going back to eating what would make you unhealthy. You cannot go on crash diets of, of positivity, of, of um, peacefulness, and then go back to what stresses you. My first advice would be just breathe. Seriously, we forget to breathe. We're so, so even I sometimes forget to breathe. And, and it's just sometimes I just stop what I'm doing and I just breathe. And something that really helps me all the time is to focus on the good, to appreciate, to be grateful. They're all different ways of saying, just look around, look at what we have, as opposed to look at not, look at what we have as opposed to looking at what we're lacking. So focusing on what we have and appreciating what we have, the very smallest minute things will bring us pleasure because it'll grow our feeling of abundance. Mm. So just focusing, and we, we do this with anywhere we do it, it's like gaming. We, we, we tell people just focus on good things. Even if you focus on one color and, and love that color, just focus on bringing more of that color in your life. Focus on the small details in life that bring pleasure. You know, stop and smell the, you know, the, the flower. Just stop and smell the flower. I have, a, I have one last question for you. Sure. And that is, what is your power and how do you use it to empower others? I love that question. I'm going to give you three answers for that. You know, my daughter, my youngest daughter came to me uh, last year and she said to me, Mama, when I have children, I want you to raise them. And I said, why do you say that? And she said, because you raised us so well. I don't know if I can be such a good mother. And I said to her, I'll just give you one piece of advice. I said, be the person you want your children to be. Don't say what you want them to do and act differently. 
Don't demand they do things and act differently. I said, be the person you want them to be. Be a role model and they will become like you. And I looked at her and I said, apples never fall far from the tree. And she smiled. So this is basically what I say, you know, when, whenever I'm asked this question, I say, if you wanna be a leader, be true to yourself. Don't pretend to be anything you, you're not. Be yourself. We all like different, there's different role models, there's different leaders. No lead, not, not all leaders are the same. Some inspire us with their craziness, some inspire us with their, um, um, how solid they are. Some inspire us because they laugh a lot and they smile a lot. Some inspire us because when, you know, they're, they're warriors. Some inspires because, inspire us because they're peaceful in how they get things done. Ga Gandhi inspires and so does um, like um, a soldier. So they're both inspiring, but each one in different situations. So leaders should be themselves, authentically, really themselves. That's what we, we, we feel. And that, that's the kind of role models we need, real people. And I just, you know, one of my favorite quotes, and I wrote it here so I don't forget it, is, and, and this quote really transformed my life. It's by Marianne Williamson. And it says, and I, and I, and I abide by this quote, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? And this is the best part. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Mm, I love that as well. I, I love it. And, and this, has been my guiding light because, you know, for years I used to diminish myself because I used to think, oh my God, I've been given so much. I've, I, you know, I've got the lucky draw. And, I, and in a way I was ashamed to have so much in life, to have the name, to have the status, to have the money, to have the influence, to have the power. I, I felt like this is unfair. And I see other people and I think, no, they why, why was I given so much and they were given so little? Mm. Until I came to the realization and it was the most beautiful realization that nothing is haphazard. I've been given all of these things because I have a mission in life. I've been given all of these things because I have to do something in life. And now that I'm doing something, I realized that it, I, I, didn't get, I wasn't lucky. This was my responsibility and I took it with honor. 
to do something in this world. My responsibility is not only to serve women, my responsibility is to be the best person I can be. Because when I'm the best person I can be, I will see the best in other people. When I'm more loving to myself, I start loving other people more. When I allow my light to shine, I allow other people's light to shine too. So that's what we need in this world. More heroes that are willing to stand up and say, I am me, I love it. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. It was such a pleasure to talk to you as always and to hear your insights. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a blessed morning ahead. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. If you'd like to support our work with women leaders who use their power to empower others, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org, or you can text VITAL to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. See you next week.